0: Well, good morning again and and welcome to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors and it is good to gather with you on this second Sunday of the new year and to continue to worship together as we open up God's word now. So Anna Claire is going to come and read our sermon text this morning. So listen to the word of the Lord.
1: He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised for it was Herod who sent and see, had sent and seized John and bowed him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And she came in immediately with haste and said to the king, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge your presence with us this morning. God, we acknowledge that you are God and you are good. God, I pray that you'd help us not just to know that, but to actually experience it. And through the highs and lows of life, God, I pray that you'd help us to know that you are with us. God, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would give all of us today ears to hear and eyes to see the greatness and gloriousness of Jesus today. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You know, every year at Christmas time, Amy and I will fill a stocking for one another. And there's usually some common things that we put in, regular staples of what's in there. In the candy department, I usually include a few of her favorites, a couple of boxes of junior mints, and in a sheer act of love, a bag of Twizzlers. I say a sheer act of love because I think Twizzlers are disgusting. Not only can I not stand the taste of them, I don't even like the smell of them, but because I love my wife, I give her those bags to enjoy on the other side of the couch. You know, we all have things that we don't particularly enjoy in life, and most of them, though, are matters of preference. Like, for instance, in addition to Twizzlers, I also don't like Brussels sprouts, okra, or Diet Coke. But, but, I think there are some things that all of us can say we don't enjoy that aren't just a matter of preference. One of those things that all of us, I think, can say we do not enjoy in life is being rejected. Whether it's a romantic interest Or maybe when you've applied for a job or applied to get into a college or tried out for a play or a sports team, it's something we've probably all experienced at different times and in different ways, but no matter how often it's happened to us, it's never fun. Rejection's hard. It's really difficult. So how do we handle it when it happens? And what are we supposed to do when we are rejected? Well, last week we finished our Advent series, Light in the Darkness, where we were looking at Luke chapter 1 and 2, and really looking at the promised birth of Jesus. Well, today we're jumping back into our sermon series that we'd have been in prior to Advent called Follow Me in the Gospel of Mark. And this is a book of the Bible, one of the gospels, where Mark, the author of this gospel, has a chief goal to show us who Jesus is and what it means to be one of his followers. Which, by the way, if you haven't grabbed one of these little handy Gospels of Mark, we have a few in the bookstore. I think they're great. You can write notes in them, all that kind of stuff. There's a few left in there. But we're jumping back in here, and we're going to continue to see how Mark is showing us who Jesus is. And where we pick back up is well into Jesus' life and into his public ministry. And what we're going to learn about today is Rejection. But this rejection isn't related to personal preferences or the pursuit of a date or a job. This is rejection and resistance that's related to following Jesus. As we come to our text today, we see these three new scenes unfold that at first glance might seem to be disconnected from one another, but Mark is sharing them here together for a purpose and for a reason And what we'll see in this text is that Jesus and Mark are setting expectations for Jesus' followers. That while rejection and resistance are normal, even to be expected for followers of Jesus, God gives grace in the midst of it. Gives grace not to give up, but to keep going. And in that, there's great hope and encouragement for us See, Mark's immediate audience that he's writing this to originally was struggling. They were suffering for their faith. And so he's seeking to help them, to encourage them. And as we sit here today with God's living and active word, this is helpful for us. Because we do experience, we will experience the same thing in a world that's set against him and his ways. So whether you're already a follower of Jesus or you're just here checking out who Jesus is, my hope for all of us is we would see that Jesus is worthy and Jesus is worth it. No matter what challenges come our way as we seek to faithfully follow him. So let's jump into Mark chapter six. And may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. You know, we've seen a lot of things already take place in the gospel of Mark. Jesus has announced the kingdom of God. He's called people to repent and to believe. We'll come back to that in a moment. He's been teaching in various places to a growing number of interested people. He's called his 12 disciples, his closest followers to himself. He's performed a lot of healings and a lot of miracles. In fact, the last time we were in the book of Mark before Advent, we saw Jesus heal a man with a demon, heal a woman who suffered physically for 12 years, and raise a dead girl back to life. Jesus has done some pretty amazing things and we've seen some pretty awesome responses of faith to who Jesus is. But as we'll see, not everyone is amazed and not everyone believes. As we come to our text today, we see Jesus head back to his hometown. But instead of a welcome reception, we see Jesus is rejected. Look at chapter six, verses one and two again. It says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, to Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. With his 12 disciples with him, Jesus does what he's consistently been doing. He's teaching. He's teaching and preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the need to repent and to believe, to come and be a part of God's people and God's kingdom. And amidst all of the miracles and all the amazing things that Jesus has done, this is his primary purpose and ministry at this point in time is telling people what it means to be one of God's people. So what is the response among the people in Jesus' hometown? We might expect it to be favorable. I mean, after all, this is a place and a people that he's very, very familiar with and who are very, very familiar with him. But that's not what happens. Look at the rest of verse 2 and verse 3. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where does this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The people are astonished, not so much with the content of what he's saying, but because he's the one that's saying it. See, they know him, at least they think they do. They've seen him grow up. They know his mom. They know his siblings. He's the local carpenter. He's likely made something for them or repaired something for them. So their astonishment is more like, who does this guy think he is to say things like this, to do things like this? You've probably heard the phrase before, familiarity breeds contempt. The idea that the more you get to know someone really, the lower your respect for them is. It's kind of what's going on here, not because they know the real Jesus, like Jesus's public face is different than his private life, but because what he's saying is so out of this world, they can't wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus, their neighbor, is the one that's saying it. Now we've already seen tensions with his biological family back in Mark chapter 3 where his brother and sisters and his mom are trying to pull him out of a scene of teaching and doing a miraculous work because they think he's lost his mind. But here we see that the people he grew up around and with seem to be against him. And their astonishment morphs into offense. They're offended by Jesus. In a place and among a people you might expect... To be excited that they know Jesus. His fame is spreading. They could be like, I know that guy. I went to high school with him. Right, we do stuff like that today. I know him. He was my neighbor one street over. No, they're not doing that with Jesus. Instead, they respond by rejecting him. Now, in the grand scheme of things, this might seem like a small rejection. Who cares if my hometown rejects me? But we also have to see in this a foreshadowing of Jesus' ultimate rejection in Jerusalem. Now, if this happened to any of us, we go home and we're sharing the things that are important to us, we might feel, we probably would feel crushed or even caught off guard. I know I would. I mean, I don't like being rejected. I I want people to like me. I want people to think that I'm doing a good job with something. I don't like the idea that people would listen to me or hear me or interact with me and think, take offense at me, be, be, and actually reject me. But Jesus doesn't seem to be fazed by this. And I think the reason is because Jesus isn't surprised by it. Look at verses four through six. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says that God spoke at many times and in many ways through his prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, God has used prophets, these messengers, to bring the word of the Lord to his people throughout history. And here Jesus is acknowledging he is a prophet, but he's not just any prophet. He's the last prophet, the final word of God. So he understands the difficulty to receive him because as John chapter 2 says, he knows all people. He knows the inner workings of the human heart, that the human heart is deceived that is drawn away to focus on self instead of the things of God. And so his ministry there is limited because of that. Not because he didn't have the power or ability. It's not like this is kryptonite for Jesus, rejection meaning he doesn't a- he's not able to do these things. No, it's because they don't have faith. Jesus isn't surprised that they reject him. He simply marvels at the level of their unbelief the Son of God standing before them, offering them grace that they would turn away. Now, what happens on the heels of this is interesting, it's important. But before we move to that, I don't want us to miss something key that we learn about rejection and resistance here. Rejection and resistance to Jesus are always rooted in a wrong understanding of who he is. Rejection and resistance to Jesus are always rooted in a wrong understanding of who Jesus is. They don't understand who he is. They don't get who he is, and this level of unbelief has blinded them to see him for who he really and truly is. And that's what Mark's been trying to show us. That's what Mark will continue to show us throughout this gospel narrative. He wants us to see Jesus. He wants us to know who Jesus really is. Because when we do, it changes everything for us. So what does Jesus do in light of this rejection? He doesn't circle the wagons. He doesn't reconsider his calling or his methodology for his ministry. In the face of opposition, verse six says he goes to other villages and continues to teach. He takes the message he's been preaching and continues to share it with others. But that's not all. Mark also shows us he expands his ministry and sends out his disciples. Look at verses seven through 10. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits, he charged them not to take, to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Now there's a few things to note here. First, the disciples are sent out in pairs. I think we can learn something from this. Ministry and mission are not meant to be solo projects. They're meant to be done in the context of community, the context of relationship. Jesus doesn't send them out as a bunch of disconnected individuals. He sends them out with a brother to go with them. So when you and I think about someone, maybe we know that doesn't yet know Jesus, we long for them to come to know Christ, consider inviting them just to meet somebody else that also knows Christ, someone in your community group. Someone that's a member of this church, invite them into relationship with God's people so they can see what it's like to be among God's people and follow Christ. But then it says Jesus sends them out and he gives them authority over unclean spirits. And based on Mark chapter three, they go preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. But remember also from Mark three, this was after they'd been with him. See, it isn't their ability or their knowledge that qualifies them to be sent, as we'll see through the rest of the gospel of Mark. They still oftentimes don't get it. They oftentimes still seem to struggle with understanding who Jesus really is. No, it's their closeness to Christ that qualifies them to be sent. And when Jesus sends them, he sends them without any resources. This would be like us being sent out, not allowed to, not allowed to use our iPhone for directions to know where we're going, or to communicate with anyone. Not being able to make a reservation at a hotel or use Yelp in an unknown city to find out a good place to eat. It'd be like not taking your credit card or having access to Venmo or Apple Pay. He's doing this, though, not to be mean. He's doing this not to create some kind of precursor to the TV show Survivor or Alone. No, this is a way for him to teach the disciples for them to learn to fully be dependent on God for his provision for them, the God who's sovereign over their life and the lives of the people they're interacting with. But I love that Mark puts this right here. Jesus is rejected. He's rejected in his hometown, the people who know him the best, but on the heels of hometown rejection and increasing pressure from the religious leaders, Mark shows us Jesus invites his disciples to be a part of his kingdom ministry of light and life breaking into places of darkness and death. Things aren't slowing down in the midst of rejection. They're speeding up. They're increasing. But within this, we see a connection with this previous section. Not only is Jesus rejected, but our second point, Jesus's message will be resisted. These disciples are getting ready to go out. They've been with Jesus, which means they saw Jesus do amazing things. They were with Jesus when he was rejected at home. So in verse 11, we see Jesus tell them they might have a similar experience. Look at verse 11. It says, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is telling them some people will receive you, but others won't. Why is that? Why might some people resist the disciples? It's because of the message they bring. Look at verse 12, it says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They're bringing a message of repentance. This idea that we need to turn away from seeking after the things of our own life, trying to be the the king of our own life and turning in faith and submitting our life to Christ as Lord and Christ as King. And so a message of repentance then confronts the very core of a person. It calls you and I to turn away from a false, independent self-sovereignty. It calls us to turn away from our rebellion and turn wholly and fully independent to Jesus as Lord and Jesus as King and Jesus as Savior. The only one who can rescue us from this rebellion, the only one who can rescue us from its consequences. That presses on the heart of humanity. Again, Jesus knows the heart of man. He knows that we are set against God, that our hearts deceive, that we focus on ourselves more than anything else. He knows that the heart of humanity doesn't want to be mastered by anything, which is false because we're enslaved to sin, God's word says. So when they're bringing this message of repentance, Jesus is saying you should expect people to resist it because what's going on inside of them, not everyone will have ears to hear her eyes to see the grace of this message, the grace of Jesus's message. It's the reality of what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter two, that as we go proclaiming Jesus, we are the aroma of Christ. But that aroma is a fragrance of life to life for some and death to death for others. So what does Jesus instruct them to do when they experience rejection, when they experience resistance? He doesn't say to give up. He tells them to press on. He tells them to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. Now this might might sound odd to us, but what he's getting at here is it's okay to move forward and okay to move on because the rejection isn't about the messenger, but the message. Now this isn't to be done in a, well, fine kind of way or a callous judgmental way, just like whatever, shake the dust off, I'm out. This is done with sober mindedness. The fact that when people reject or resist the message of Christ, they don't listen, when they don't receive, when they don't repent, they're actually rejecting the only means of rescue, the only means of redemption for their sin and rebellion. So what do we to do with that? When we share the gospel with someone and they don't turn in repentance, do we shake dust off of our feet? Does it mean that we just share the gospel one time and then move on? If someone doesn't repent and believe? I think we can linger and labor to patiently and gently share Christ and him crucified with our neighbors, with our friends, and with our family. But I think we can learn two things from this. One, we shouldn't be surprised that people will reject Jesus when we share about him with others. And let's make sure, as a side note, that it's Jesus they're rejecting, not the method in which we're sharing about him. Second, you and I can't make anyone believe There's no no magic words that you can say. There's nothing that you can do to convince someone it's a work of the Lord in their life to give them ears to hear and eyes to see. And so that gives us freedom as we entrust that person to the sovereignty and providence of God as we pray and plead for them to cross from death to life. Now I know some of you have been doing that for years, decades even, with the family member, maybe with your children. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep trusting, entrusting them to God. In verse 13, Mark gives us a summary statement. He says, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The disciples go out knowing that they'll be rejected and resisted like Jesus was, but God uses them still to spread the words of the king and the influence of the kingdom. And more and more people are taking notice, even up to the highest levels. Look at verses 14 and 15. King Herod heard of it. He heard of what the disciples are doing. He heard of what Jesus is doing. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work within him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Once again, here comes this question, who is Jesus? People are confused and speculating. Is he John the Baptist, who now we find out is dead? Or Elijah? Or some other prophet? But instead of resolving this question, Mark does something really interesting here. He dives into why and how John the Baptist dies, which doesn't happen chronologically at this point. Mark's inserting this in the midst of his narrative here. Why? Why does he put this here? Because he's connecting the dots for us. Remember, he, along with Jesus, is trying to show this original audience and us something. That rejection and resistance are normal, even to be expected for those who are following Jesus, not only in seeking to walk in the ways of the king and his kingdom, but proclaiming the message of the king and his kingdom. Now he's showing us that that rejection, that resistance can lead even to the point of death. And so he tells us, our third point, how Jesus' messenger is martyred. Everyone's questioning who Jesus is, but Herod, and this is a different Herod from Luke chapter 1 and 2, the time of Jesus' birth. This is one of his sons. He thinks he knows who Jesus is. Look at verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Then Mark tells the story of John's arrest and execution at the core of what landed John in prison is what the disciples were doing in their ministry. He was calling Herod to repent. In particular, to repent of his sin of marrying his brother's wife. Saying, this is wrong. It's not honoring to God. Well, Herod's wife doesn't like this. So Herod throws John in prison. She wanted him dead, but Herod has this strange Way of fearing and respecting John because he knew, verse 20 tells us, that he was a holy and righteous man. But then Herod's birthday comes up and an opportunity is presented. He throws this party, this banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, and he's boasting about all these different things going on and his wife's daughter comes in and and dances and performs in front of them. And he tells her, you can have whatever you want up to half of my kingdom. He's saying, I can do anything for you. What is it that you want? So she goes out to her mother. She says, he says, I can have anything. What should I ask for? And immediately she says, I want John's head. John's head on a platter. John's in prison because he was faithful, even in the midst of rejection and resistance But notice Herod, fearing rejection and resistance from his guests, calls for John to be beheaded, even though he knows it's wrong. Look at verses 27 through 29. It says, And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So again, why is Mark mentioning this here? Why does he insert this here? I think there's two purposes. First, John is the precursor for Jesus and his kingdom and telling us about that. But he's also the precursor for Jesus in his death. His rejection and death foreshadow Jesus' rejection and death. Just like John, Jesus will be killed for his righteousness due to political pressure and religious expectations. But unlike John, Jesus' death will pay for the sin of people, even the people who reject him and persecute him. People from every tribe and every language and every nation who place their faith and trust in him. Jesus won't be a political martyr or a spiritual martyr. He'll be a sacrificial substitute for sinners like you and like me. But second... Mark puts all this all together in this section after a fruitful time of ministry for Jesus to show his original audience, to show us that following Jesus will be challenging and not everyone will be successful from the world's perspective. Jesus was popular in the region. His fame was spreading, but so was John. People knew who John the Baptist was. Is this what he had in mind when he said in John chapter three and talking about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease? Did he expect this to be the end, the outcome for his life? And then one of the gospel accounts as John sits in prison, he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to say, are you really the one we're looking for? He has his own moment of unbelief. Thinking, "Ah, this isn't how I thought this was going to go. John was faithful even though it cost him his freedom, even though it cost him his life. And Mark wants us to see, Jesus wants us to see that there is a real cost to faithfully following him. That's why this is sandwiched between the sending of the 12 and their return. Verse 30 says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They come back and things seem to have gone well for them, but not for John. Not everyone will always be received. Not everyone will always be successful. In fact, almost all of these men would one day also die for following Jesus. But the gospel has gone forward. Even through opposition. Even in, in through death. All over the world. All the way here to Fairfax. The message of repentance and faith that the kingdom of God has spread and God again and again and again has worked in the face of rejection, in the face of opposition. So we would, shouldn't be surprised then when we see it and experience it in our own lives. The Mark, the writer of this gospel, wasn't one of the 12 disciples. But most scholars believe that he got most of his information to write this gospel account from Peter. Peter, who has had a front row seat to all that we've seen and all we've heard in this section and Peter writes a letter to a struggling group of Christians, a suffering group of Christians who are being rejected and being resisted. And he says this to them, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, if you're suffering or experiencing resistance because you're doing wrong things, that's not what I'm talking about here. Yet, if anyone suffers, Peter says, as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Listen, the reality is in a world that is set against God in his ways, if we follow Jesus, we will be a rejected people. We will be a rejected people. You shouldn't be surprised by this. We can look not only through the pages of scripture, but the pages of the history of the church and see from the earliest days to now, many have been rejected. Many have been persecuted and put in prison. Many have been pushed to the margins and even killed for following Jesus and proclaiming the glorious good news of his saving grace. If we follow Jesus, we will be a rejected people. But let's not forget that we are a rejected people who follow a rejected and now risen savior who says that he will be with us now and forever. We will experience rejection and resistance in this life, but church, God gives grace not to give up. He gives grace to keep going, to know and remember that Jesus says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The one who sits on the throne, ruling and reigning even now, he gives us grace to keep following him, grace to keep inviting others to come and see and experience new life in him. But this isn't a call to just keep swimming. This isn't a call for us to kind of endure by way of willpower. It's not what Peter's saying. No, he's calling us to look to Christ. This is a call to rely on the one who has walked this path before you, experienced all of these same difficulties, and is walking with you still. To run the race before you with endurance which will only happen when we fix our eyes on our suffering servant who is our risen redeemer. Jesus is rejected in his hometown. The apostles would experience resistance and many would die for the sake of the gospel. John the Baptist was beheaded for his faithfulness. And it makes me think about them, how good must the good news be for them to be willing to do that? Only when we recognize how desperate and dead in our sin are we are without it and without him will we be willing to do that. That's how amazing this good news is. And that's what we need to be reminded of regularly. See the reality is we were all the rejectors, We were the resistors, we were the scoffers and mockers of Jesus. Rebels set against God, not looking for rescue, not looking for redemption from him, shaking our fist at him. But as Romans chapter five says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for not the godly, not those who'd clean their life up, but for the ungodly. And God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still resisting Christ, Christ died for us. It was my disobedience, my rebellion, my unbelief, my sin that held him there until he said, it is finished. Nailed to a Roman cross, bleeding, gasping for breath. He did that for me. He did it for you. That's unfathomable. Who would do that? Only a God who is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Only a God who before the foundation of the world purposed to pursue and redeem and restore a people to himself. That is truly amazing, earth-shattering, life-altering news, good news that changes everything. Listen, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I want you to see that right now you are rejecting him. You're resisting him but even in your rejection, he's inviting you to himself. He's inviting you to himself to experience a new life in him. So I implore you, repent and believe. Repent and believe. For those of us that are already following Jesus, is the gospel that amazing to you? So amazing that you're willing to experience rejection. You're willing to experience resistance, even death, for seeking to follow Jesus and tell others about him. For millions of our brothers and sisters around the world, this is a very real question with a very real life and death implications to it. But the reality for most of us in America, at least in this generation, is that we won't experience the threat of death for following Jesus or telling others about him, but we will experience rejection and resistance in other ways. Again, not because of the method with which we talk about Jesus, not because of our preferences or opinions, for seeking to faithfully and humbly follow Jesus in all things. Maybe you get passed over for a promotion because of the things you are willing or not willing to do in your workplace because people know that Jesus is important to you. Maybe you'll be made fun of at school, not thought of as cool amongst your friends or peers because you're seeking to follow after Christ. Maybe you'll be included but kept at a distance by coworkers or neighbors because they know you're one of those Jesus people. Some of you might lose your jobs because of your faith. Many of us will be ridiculed, lose relationships, or have strained relationships with friends or family, maybe your parents or your kids, people we care deeply about. In a myriad of other more acute and personal ways I know some of you have or are even experiencing right now in the midst of all of it, are you willing, am I willing to endure that? For the sake of honoring King Jesus. And I like to say yes all of the time. But if I'm honest, the reality of my life is that I don't always feel that way. I don't always act that way. Sometimes it's just easier to stay quiet. It's just easier to go along with the crowd, just wanting to fit in. But that's why I need texts like this. That's why I need a community like this. To remind me that this place is not my home that I'm a sojourner, a citizen of heaven, to remind me that Jesus is worthy and Jesus is worth it. And he gives grace to keep going forward as we look to him, as we rely on him, as we walk by faith and not by sight. Listen, there's a very real cost to following Jesus. So we shouldn't be surprised by rejection and resistance along the way. As As we've seen in this text, not everyone will be successful in the world's eyes. But that's okay, because you and I aren't called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. Faithful to the risen king who one day will come again and make all things new. Faithful to the one who says to you and says to me, even now, follow me. You know, I can't think of a better gift of grace right now to help us to keep going, to keep following Jesus before we head into this week than to take communion together. So if you don't yet have the elements for the Lord's Supper, you can grab those in the back or if you're in the balcony along the railing. You know, this meal reminds us of the faithful suffering Jesus endured for our unfaithfulness. We eat the bread, the picture of his body broken and given for us. We drink the cup, a picture of his blood shed for us. And I want us to recognize that in this meal, there is grace for you. The very real presence of Jesus the risen King, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for you, for me, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And this meal is grace to keep going, to keep walking in faithfulness, to keep bringing light into dark places until he comes again or calls you home. Grace to help you remember that he is worthy and he is worth it. And so before you eat and drink, before we stand and sing, I want to just invite you just to take some time to reflect and to respond to ask for help in the midst of whatever may be suffering or trial or rejection you're experiencing right now, to repent, to rejoice, and then we'll eat and drink together. And listen, if you're not yet a Christian, we're so grateful God's brought you to gather with us this morning. Instead of eating and drinking this meal, we just wanna invite you to think in the reality of who Jesus is. Who do you say that he is? Will you turn to him today in faith and let us know how we can help you along your journey? So take a few moments right now to quietly commune with God and then we'll eat and drink together. Brothers and sisters, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's take the bread, a picture of his body broken, and eat together in celebration of his grace. And now let's take a cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for you, for me, and drink together in worship of him. Do you pray with me? Oh God of mercy and God of grace, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that we will experience rejection and resistance. But God, you give grace to keep going. Whatever someone's experiencing right now, maybe it's with their kids or a family member or a coworker, God, I pray that you'd help them right now to set their eyes on Christ, to know that you are worthy, that you're worth it. God, we're rejected people. We follow a rejected and risen savior who is for us and with us. So help us to remain faithful focused on him in all things among all people for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.